This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Buddhism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kate Hartman, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Bill Gorvine, associate professor at Hendricks College, about his new book, Envisioning a Tibetan Luminary, The Life of a Modern Bunpo Saint, out this year from Oxford University Press. Bill Gorvine, uh, welcome to the show. Yes, it's so great to talk about this wonderful new book. Um, So just to start us off, uh, Bill, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came, um, you know, to the study of religion, to the study of Bun, um, and then to uh, the specific work that motivated this project. I would say that, um, you know, the story, you know, you could, just like in the, the lives of, of saints, although I wouldn't want to put myself anywhere near that category, um, in Buddhism, you know, you never know which former life uh, to go to go back to, you know, to begin the tale. Um, so um, unfortunately, I don't have the, the knowledge to be able to go that far back. But um, within the framework of this life, I think um, the decision to study abroad in college is probably the biggest one that I made. Um, I was fortunate enough to do the University of Wisconsin-Madison college year in India program. Um, um, I didn't really, I just kind of went with what they recommended at the time. I was interested in, in Hinduism and Indian mythology and yoga and possibly Sanskrit. And I thought I might try to go to Varanasi, but they, I think they needed people for the South India program. And they, they convinced me to learn Telugu and to go to Vishakhapatnam, which where they used to have a campus back in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, so um, when I was in Madison for the summer doing Telugu, um, I met some people who were studying Tibetan Know, with Geshe Sopa at that time in a summer intensive and um, doing the college year in Nepal program and uh, became friends with one of them. And when my program was, was over, I decided to travel around and went and visited people at their program house in Kathmandu and Boda. And, um, that was my first real connection or, you know, with Tibetans in exile and was really fascinated, kind of taken by what, what I saw going on there. And, my kind of encounter with Buddhism from a, you know, in-person perspective. I had taken a course in Buddhism in college um, prior to that. But um, so in any case, I had some interest in sort of Kagyu and Yingma traditions, um, eventually decided I wanted to try to pursue that in graduate school. And um, when I did so, I moved to Virginia, where I did my PhD in the in the mid nineties, around 93 actually. And it was the very same summer that I was starting summer Tibetan 
that um, a Burn Lama uh, moved to Charlottesville at the same time. Um, and that's uh, Tenzin Wangao, uh, who is now quite well known, founded the Lignancia Institute um, for you know, bringing Burn to the West, uh, America, and Europe. And so that's, I didn't really know anything about Burn prior to that time, but his teacher, uh, Yongzin Rinpoche, Yongzin Tenzin Namda, came at the same time that very first summer in Virginia and was teaching um, Dzogchen, which is when I learned that the Burn tradition had Dzogchen. Uh, and he was teaching from a text that was actually authored by Shardzatashi Geltsen, who ended up becoming the subject of this book. <laughs> um, and so after meeting them and kind of having sort of burn suddenly as my, almost my literal next door neighbor, uh, as a grad student in Charlottesville, um, I thought, Hey, there isn't as much research done on burn as there seems to be in other Tibetan lineages. And I have these connections now, you know, maybe I could go scout out, um, some, you know, some sort of pre-dissertation field work or figure out what kind of I could do in burn studies. Um, and initially I thought I would do a, a project related to Dzogchen tradition or, you know, practice texts or philosophical texts or something. Um, and uh, I went to Eastern Tibet, um, ended up finding a Bund community um, and discovered that the work they were doing uh, there was also based on some of the writings of Shardza. Um, so again, I could probably tell you even more about these stories, but, but that's, that's the kind of the beginnings anyway, of how I started moving towards this project. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, encountering the, the works of Shardza everywhere you went, sounds like. Yeah. So, um, you know, as I said at the beginning, this is the channel on Buddhist studies, um, but your work is about Bun. So perhaps, um, not everyone listening to the channel knows so much about Bun. Could you perhaps give, you know, just a brief overview of what Bun is, um, how it relates to Buddhism um, for some of those listeners? Yeah, it's true. And, I, and I, I suppose I could plug the book a little bit for people who would like to know more. Um, I was encouraged to try to do some of that very thing in the first chapter. Um, you know, because, yeah, you can't really assume, I mean, many people, myself included, who have a, an interest in Buddhism or in Tibetan you know, religious culture, uh, you know, may have encountered Bun as perhaps even as the sort of nemesis of of of, or, of figures like Milarepa or early Buddhism or Padmasambhava. You know, is Bun the, the the native tradition of Tibet that is sort of uh, an impediment to the spread and diffusion of Buddhism in early Tibet? And indeed, at times, you know, it's represented as such. And and I think there have been. Um, you know, history of at times strained relationships between these kind of emerging lineages um, in Tibetan history. But um, but there's other ways also to think about you know the tradition. Um, if it isn't the kind of you know the the rival of of the early Buddhists, it's sometimes styled as the indigenous religion of Tibet, um, which. You know, there's some basis for that, but then if you actually talk to the Bunpos about their own history, they'll tell you that they originated in, in lands to the west of the Tibetan plateau. So, in some sense, we could see them as also uh, a, a kind of uh, a tradition that spread and, and diffused and came into Tibet from somewhere else. So, it, it may not be quite native in the same way. Um, I think, you know, if we try to boil it down to a sort of a nutshell, we can say that. The tradition preserves certain uh, ritual traditions, um, 
certain you know understandings of particular deities uh, that are unique, kind of different from what you might find in Tibetan Buddhist lineages. But on the other side, um, they've they've kind of been in cultural dialogue now for over a millennia, and um, and that there are you know higher teachings or teachings uh, pertaining to liberation uh, in Bun tradition um, that are you know very old at this point, um, and I think you find a kind of um, a lot of parallels. Um, people like Perikavarna has written about that in terms of monasticism monastic discipline, you know, the notions of liberation, the path to liberation, philosophical studies, you know, notions of emptiness and, you know, and bodhicitta and all of this. Um, and in particular, um, you know, there's a lot in common with the Nyingma tradition when it comes to uh, teachings about the nature of mind. And, um, so they have the great perfection or Dzogchen as the kind of pinnacle of their, of their system of, of vehicles or, you know, as the ultimate view and so on. And, uh, and they have Tantra as well. And um, again, some of the you know Buddhist polemicists asserted or insisted that these materials were sort of plagiarized versions of Buddhist texts. But um, I think some of the scholarship has shown that the kind of intertextual relationships over his, over time have been really complicated. And it's not always clear, you know, what preceded what and what influenced what. And um, some of the death rituals and other things are you know, that we find in Tibetan Buddhism may, may owe, owe something to burn, uh, you know, predecessors and so forth. So um, the, you know, the tradition that I got to know is, um, is what some would call the reformed burn tradition or what the Bunpos themselves call Yungdrung burn or eternal burn, which, um, you know, really was sort of consolidated, um, you know, beginning in what the 11th century and certainly by the 15th century, you have these, uh, you know, a kind of a monastic uh, and textual tradition that uh, is well established in ways that are, you know, analogous to other lineages. Um, and so, um, you know, a lot of my time on the project was at the, the, the headquarters, the kind of monastic seat of Bun, known as Menri Monastery, which formerly was, you know, in central Tibet. Um, and uh, so if, if, uh, you know, someone who, who wasn't interested in the nuances of Tibetan lineages kind of wandered through northern India and showed up in this community, they might very well assume they're at a Buddhist monastery. Um, it just so happens that some of the deities and some of the ritual traditions and, and kind of, uh, you know, commentaries and other things that they read are, uh, are different. Um, but, um, you know, I think that could be a, an area for, you know, people to further explore, you know, how what's Bun's unique take on emptiness and so forth for the philosophers and scholastics out there. There's, uh, you know, some of that's been done, but there's, there's always more. Um, and perhaps it's less well-known than, uh, than some of the other stuff. Yes, it certainly does seem that um, Bun sometimes just gets cast as this, you know, other minority thing in Tibetan religions. And we don't super think too much of it, except that it's, you know, just cast as this other or sometimes as this changeless or timeless thing. When when I think one of the, you know, certainly the key um, benefits of your book is to examine sort of the dynamics of Bun and that it's changing and it's interacting uh, with Buddhism in interesting ways. I'll echo your plug from earlier to say that I think this book gives one of the best sort of accessible introductions to the Bun tradition. So listeners who 
uh, of course, should read the whole book, may want to even just excerpt that part of, uh, for use in teaching classes. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. I hope so. You know, that was something that I was felt a little daunting to take on. Oh, how do I kind of summarize a tradition and, you know, in one chapter? Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of things that I've left out that, perhaps could could be mentioned there but um i would i hoped it would be accessible enough to uh a non-specialized audience um, and i was happy even my um my older sisters who were proud that i was able to come out with this book and who know nothing about tibetan religion i think they were able to make it through the first chapter nice. at least right without, without yes I'm, uh, pain. yeah sure our students also appreciate that you know the book has been tried and tested on a kind of non- Buddhist studies specialist audience and, and been found uh, helpful. That's true. Yeah, nobody complained about it on course evaluations too much. When this was in progress, I did subject it to some Excellent. undergrads at a liberal arts college. So that was my hope that it would. You well, know, I think it's very they could, they could handle on that it. front. Um, and so turning to uh, the, the subject of the book as a whole, uh, Shardza Tashi Gyaltsen, uh, can you tell us a little bit about him, who he is, um, you know, what compelled you to write this book about him? Sure. Um, well, you know, as I kind of mentioned initially, um, I probably had more interest in, you know, in the Dzogchen tradition as a whole. Um, you know, my uh, my advisor, David Germano, is, you know, known for having a lot of expertise about the Nyingma Dzogchen tradition. And of course, there'd been work on that by, you know, others like Janet Gyatso and talking about Jigme Lingpa. And, um, you know, there was one book on Bun Dzogchen by Samten Karme. And so I really thought, oh, okay, you know, one of the things that Shardza is, is known for is for, um, you know, being a kind of fairly contemporary kind of modern day proponent of Dzogchen. Um, but um, it wasn't Shardza specifically that I was um, kind of aiming to do a project on. But um, but as I mentioned, I found that uh, you know some of the Dzogchen being taught to Western audiences by you know Bun authorities owed to his writing. And then when I got to Eastern Tibet, um, I discovered that some of the you know the trainings that you know sort of contemplative nuns were doing was also based on on his writing. Um, and so then my next thought was, well, I, I'd like to do my field work in, with the exile community in India, in Menri. Um, let me explore, you know, how they may be applying Shards' Dzogchen materials. And when I got there, with that in mind, this was kind of what I got funding for. I quickly discovered that, um, you know, his writing was not um, going to be sort of... Um, singled out and promoted as, you know, the most important or as, or as particularly essential. There's even perhaps some sense in which it shouldn't uh, take pride of place uh, in the curriculum in Menry, the kind of, you know, the headquarters of Bun. And I was a little surprised. I thought, okay, so, oh, you know, they don't read Shardza. Um, and as I kind of asked around, I found out that like, well, you know, actually, you know, his material is very accessible and we will look at it, you know, as a supplement. But, you know, their job was to preserve um, older uh, Dzogchen material um, and to make that primary. 
And in, in kind of finding out about this, I discovered that there had been some controversy over whether Shardza had been kind of sufficiently orthodox enough and that there had been people, you know, in the history of Menri and other central Tibetan monasteries who, uh, you know, had 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 some questions and doubts. And in fact, some controversy had developed about whether, you know, Shardza's material was... Uh, had kind of strayed too far, had become too ecumenical, too remay, and was in some sense too informed by Buddhist uh, approaches or terminology or whatnot. Um, and so this then became, um, you know, a kind of an important thing to investigate. And I thought, well, you know, what, what, how did all of this happen? And, um, and in, I, I decided my first order of business was to kind of learn more about his life history and how it was that he had had some of these relationships that may have led to uh, his work being, uh, you know, the subject of some doubt on the part of authorities in, in Menry. Um, and so what, yeah, that he's simultaneously this sort of central figure and exactly, yet um, there's marginal. this, interesting controversy around him that he perhaps represents. Exactly. I wanted to know like, um, why somebody interesting who, developments who I expected that, to be central. You know, and, and what's the story in behind these that? very different burn communities I had, I had found, I had wandered into, you know, he was lauded and, and there was no question that his work was, was accessible and it was uh, a source of blessings and, you know, it was clear. And, and in fact, he's, he's reported to have attained the rainbow body. He is a Jalupa, which is, you know, one of the, the more interesting and things about him and one of the things that makes him famous. Um, I also discovered that, you know, in, in Western scholarship, he was uh, especially celebrated as a kind of uh, the main burn contributor to the nonpartisan movement in Eastern Tibet to the Rime movement. And so I kind of expected him to just be celebrated wherever I found him. And then I get to, you know, the headquarters of Bun and, and there's some sense in which people are like, yeah, okay. But, um, and kind of, you know, um, uh, there was some, a little bit of a different, a different sensibility there. And, and that, that, as I, as you just summarized for me, that's kind of what led me to kind of want to explore his life history and life story. And, and thus the biog the biography be uh, became ended up becoming the focus for for the project yeah and so uh so you mentioned the Rime movement and the sort of changes that are happening in Tibet during the time uh, Shardza is living so what um maybe you could tell us a little bit about um what life is like when Shardza is born and when he's active, uh, what is the sort sure. of environment? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. I, I started to become curious to, you know, also get, try to get a sense for how did this, this, uh, figure kind of rise to prominence and what kind of things contributed to his career as a, as a religious figure and, you know, and eventually one who was embroiled in some controversy, uh, would these, te would these texts tell me that? And in what way? And, and that's one thing that, you know, we could talk more about is the genre a little bit as well. I, um, you know, to what degree can we read these as, uh, as histories, as a source for, you know, understanding uh, this period of Tibet's past? Or to what degree are they also kind of idyllic, uh, inspirational stories, you know, or perhaps even political uh, acts? 
acts, right, that would position him, you know, in a certain way uh, um, amidst the landscape. Um, but uh, so I think I was both a, a kind of a hopeful reader, but maybe also a cautious one in terms of um, trying to understand, you know, what it, what it can tell us. But I think, you know, our field has, has um, you know, come to recognize that we really can uh, discern some interesting features of local history through these texts, that they're, they're not just kind of, um, oh, I don't know, kind of uh, giving us sort of cardboard two-dimensional characters who are saints and, you know, here's a three-page story about his life. Instead, you know, we have in the longer of these of two texts that uh, talk about shards, and we've got, you know, 600 pages of, of uh, detailed uh, documenting of places visited and so forth. But um, circling back to his environment, he, he was born in a, a rural area, a place called Zakok. So Shard Za is Eastern Za which is in, in, in Kham in Eastern Tibet. And it's, I think it's in the, if I remember the kind of a fairly remote part of Kham, um, near the Dachu River. Um, I haven't, sadly, I have not visited uh, the place where uh, his, his hermitage was or his whole monastery, but I understand you still have to uh, walk a ways to get there. It's still not so accessible by road. Um, and, he, he was not born to a family uh, of any real rank. Um, it didn't seem as though he had any particular advantages or particular um, dynamics that would have um, kind of predisposed him to a religious career. Um, you know, he wasn't recognized as a toku, and uh, he didn't have an uncle or someone who was, you know, in the monastery. Um, and in fact, he was the only son of his parents, uh, which you know, at first he, he seems to, according to the story, express some interest in, in taking vows, uh, you know, as a young person, uh, a, a number of his sort of schoolmates or his peers were doing so. And his parents really didn't want him to get too involved. And um, at one point, uh, he starts to show signs of uh, disturbance, which maybe, you know, he uh, he's acting out uh, from a in, a, in a particular cultural idiom, it can also be a sign that the protector deities were kind of intervening uh, because he was a person of with kind of special karma to do, to do this work. It's a kind of, you know, religious vocation, if you like. Um, but his parents resisted um, his initial efforts. And, you know, they probably would have liked to have passed the family property onto him and had him carry on the line. Um, but a local Lama who, kind of shows up as a sort of tantric adept and a, uh, a ritual specialist uh, basically tells him, look, there's no other way. You know, if, if your kid doesn't become a monk, you know, he's not going to be of any help to you. He's not, he's not going to be useful. Um, so you should do it. Uh, so the reluctant parents allowed that, but um, this is the beginning for him really uh, is uh, learning to, you know, uh, perform rituals you know, with a teacher uh, in a local community, perhaps, you know, do uh, helping the, what some would call, what Jeffrey Samuel called the pragmatic orientation, right, of Tibetan uh, village religion, um, help with the, keep the animals healthy and the crops growing and the hail away and, the, you know, the rain coming on time. Mm-hmm. These are very important things to yeah. make sure someone qualified is taking care of them. 
Yeah. And so, um, you know, perhaps I should have asked about this first, but you mentioned, um, so, you know, how are, how do we know any of these things, um, that there are two uh, biographies or hagiographies that form the sort of core of um, the sources informing this book? So maybe could you tell us about these, a little bit more about these two biographies or hagiographies or life stories? Um, sure. They're, they're both written by uh, the same author, uh, one of his disciples. So, um, and, and it's actually kind of helpful that he, the author in the, uh, in the longer of the two, um, what I, what's called the, what I call the comprehensive or the kind of Gepa, the expanded uh, version of the life. He takes some time to kind of reflect, um, openly and reflexively about the nature of his project and what he thinks a biography ought to be, um, and what it not, what it shouldn't be and so forth. And, um, you know, both of them intend to sort of foster faith in disciples or engender confidence, right, in, in themselves and their lineage. Um, uh, but it, you know, one of them, the, the expansive one, um, also pref- is a kind of curriculum vita in the sense that it really does try to chart out and document um, accomplishments um, in, a, in a rather detailed chronological sort of a way. It, it, it is a kind of a chronicle um, and, you know, with occasional uh, quite interesting authorial, authorial commentary uh, that, that is the kind of stuff that at times gets my attention as a reader. Um, and then this is contrasted with a, a condensed or a kind of a door do a kind of abridged biography, which um, the translation of which constitutes the second part of the book Um and, and that's kind of, I suppose, a funny story. I didn't really think I was going to do a translation. I really just wanted to get a sense for his life. But the the uh, the abbot of Menry was kind enough to appoint a, a young scholar to work with me on the translation of this or on on my research, and um, and he was he was a wonderful partner uh, to do this work with. His name is uh, is Druxe or Druxe um, Chigme Tenzin, and. Uh, he was so uh, methodical and careful that when we were reading, like we really were discussing like grammar, you know, from the get go and, well, this is an honorific verb. So, you know, he can't be talking about himself there and, you know, really trying to, to parse it in detail um, and then to look up reference and stuff. And, and we were going so slow that I thought, you know, if I'm taking notes, I might as well just start producing the translation. Um, so that's what we did. But this, this shorter version that we worked on um, is more of a, um, provides a more stylized image, a more thematic uh, presentation of an ideal life. And so I would say that one is closer to a kind of hagiography. Um, you know, it, it kind of talks about his life uh, according to a, a series of categories that I think give you a sense for what this author thinks an ideal life should have, you know, should include. Um, so I kind of, so I translated that one and then I read, um, and, you know, jotted down notes, kind of did a, a briefer skim through of the comprehensive version. And then my own kind of portrait tries to combine the two. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And these, um, you know, so the study of these hagiographies, um, has been a, a focus in Tibetan studies for a while insofar as these are often, our primary source of information about these wonderful figures. And yet we're both aware of the kind of textual project of inspiration, of motivation, 
um, you know, of turning this person into a model to be followed, and yet also wanting to be to interested in, you know, what what do they what do they tell us? How do we read them as scholars? And so, um, you alluded before to saying that these hagiographies aren't giving us these two dimensional cardboard cutouts. Um, so, how would you say that you were, you know, reading these sources or approaching these sources? Yeah. Well, I think it's it's interesting, you know. I mean, I guess in my own mind, or one of the things that that, that I had uh, always in the background was some of this sort of oral history that I collected in the Bun settlement, and which and it was wonderful that you know I think things were at enough of a historical distance that whatever controversy had ensued during and, and after Shards's lifetime about his status vis-a-vis the Bun orthodoxy. In other words, you know, was he orthodox enough or, you know, uh, or who took what side in, in perhaps some rather nasty uh, correspondence that, that circulated in the Bun world about, about these things. Um, all of that was, was far enough in the past by, you know, the time um, I came to this project that many people in the Bun community were open and talking about it with me. You know, they, there wasn't a feeling as though these wounds are still fresh. We can't talk about these fissures or fractures that had afflicted our community. Um, I think, you know, given the exile experience and everything that happened in the second half of the 20th century, you know, in Tibet, that this stuff was small, small change. And so, you know, His Holiness, you know, the 33rd Mendry Treason, the abbot and head of Bun at the time was telling stories about these things and, and many other senior lamas also would. And, and they themselves had, you know, their teachers had been involved in writing um, some of this correspondence uh, criticizing Shardza, um, you know, but he, the abbot himself told me that uh, his teacher later spent time in Eastern Tibet and read some of Shards' material firsthand and actually changed his mind and kind of became convinced that it, it had merit. Um, and so he received a favorable opinion of Shardza himself, but was aware of, you know, they, that many, many of the senior people had teachers who may have been on one or the other side in this sort of debate about whether Shardza was uh, to be trusted or not. Um, and, and so because I, I had those, that, that kind of oral history in mind, it kind of gave me a lens or an angle to kind of think about the, the representation that I was sort of consuming as or encountering as a reader. Um, you know, in other words, um, is this, you know, and at times there's things that might feel fairly kind of generic qualities that you would want a Buddhist figure of any kind of Lama to have, you know, does he, is he motivated by, you know, concern for the welfare of others? Well, yes, he is, you know, of course, you know, is he uh, disillusioned with, you know, worldly affairs in some way? Well, yes, he is, you know, and, um, and, and occasionally there may be some nuance in there that, 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 uh, you know, um, adds a little bit of extra, um, subtlety or texture that, that we can appreciate. Um, and at times it, it may be fairly kind of um, pedestrian, right? In the way it's related, and, you know, fits the profile. But, um, but for me, I could also along the way be, be wondering, oh, if, if he's emphasizing his fidelity to monastic precepts or to, um, you know, the old Menry traditions and 
texts and so forth. Um, is that partly in order to appease this segment of his audience, you know, that we know was, was suspicious about that particular question, let's say. And, um, so that, that, that kind of thing helped me to um, read it in a way that, you know, gave me things to look for uh, here and there um, as I was otherwise kind of, um, you know, letting the image kind of um, wash over me, let's say, as a reader. Yeah. So as you're reading these these texts, which present this kind of perfected um, portrait of this figure, you're also aware that there's an ongoing controversy about his place in the tradition. And so it kind of helps you. One of the really interesting things about the book is that you're reading these hagiographies to say, you know, what objections or suspicions, as you just said, are they anticipating on the part of potential audiences? And how are they kind of, um, you know, going out there and presenting Shardza in such a way as to address uh, those concerns. Um. Yeah, I really did feel, I mean, I've read that, you know, they talk, and, and again, other people, senior scholars in Tibetan studies have talked about the fact that these, um, you know, perform uh, a kind of a political function amidst a competitive sectarian environment uh, among, you know, and that, that certainly makes sense, you know, that they, they may be um, trying to, again, develop uh, a sense of confidence in a figure, but sometimes that, you know, that may be required or necessary if there are those in the world who, who lack confidence in, in that figure. Um, but I think, you know, rather than seeing it, but, but it, you know, to say that doesn't mean that it's, um, oh, I don't know, it's the result of some sort of uh, scheming and this sort of machinations that it's all part of a political calculus i think that there can be these twin a lot of things can be happening at once i mean i think that that it's certainly also a an act of faith on the part of the of a disciple to represent his teacher in uh in terms that are quite devotional really and and that and indeed you know the text is read sometimes on retreat you know by people who are undertaking shards as preliminary practices you know uh and that they really do uh, help to, um, you know, motivate students in that traditional way. Um, and yet, I also think it could be trying to create, you know, an image, a kind of literary image that would um, that would create community. We could say that would maybe even heal divisions, or or might not necessarily be about you know beating out some other political rival, but rather simply trying to kind of create a, a sort of harmonious image that everyone could embrace. Uh, I think I, I see it sort of along those lines. Mm-hmm. Yes. You, you um, say that in uh, the introduction that you, we can see this, um, these two biographies as having, you know, three either explicit or implicit goals, you, namely the inspiration um, and engendering confidence on the part of disciples addressing these potential confer- uh, concerns of a suspicious audience, but then imagining a community and in the process of writing, perhaps helping create such a community where these rifts in the Bun community between old Bun and new Bun, between um, ecumenical, more monastic, that this text helps imagine, you know, a, a community in which those rifts are kind of um, minimized and healed and you know, brought together. 
I think so. I think so. And, you know, again, there's, it's hard to know how it was received at the time, like whether it was successful. Um, you know, I'm not sure in a way that that may be, uh, you know, perhaps uh, ambitious, right, on his part, or to imagine that uh, in that period that, you know, those who were already embroiled in the controversy would have been persuaded. But it does seem as though, you know, a generation or two removed and I think, you know, this, in some sense, these, this is the definitive portrait of Shardza, and he does seem to be remembered in these terms. And again, I think lots of other, as we know, you know, terrible circumstances in Tibet, uh, you know, um, maybe rendered some of these things moot, but, um, but at least in the present day, it seems as though it's, uh, you know, it, perhaps it's, it's succeeded, uh, if not in its original moment in time, then, you know, within a few generations. Yeah, and I, I I love that the book does present you know an investigation of these literary works that's aware to the kind of multiple dynamics playing out, the potential work that it's doing, what it's trying to do. Um, I really love that. Um, but so we've alluded generally to Shardza being controversial or potentially mired in this rift between communities. Perhaps we could flesh that out a bit and say what are the the different poles of potential parties that are talking about Shardza, um, you know, what, what things are going on in the Bund community yeah. uh, when he is active? Yeah, well, you just helpfully mentioned the terms old Bun and new Bun, and that may be a, a good place to start. Um, you know, there's, um, I think there's this sense that, uh, you know, the, the kind of the ecumenical movement that, uh, you know, we, we label Rime that was active primarily in Eastern Tibet. This may be a good way, I think by analogy with what was happening in Tibetan uh, religious history more generally was probably uh, replicated, you know, kind of in miniature uh, among Bunpo. Or that's, that's sort of what I argue that there is a kind of distinctive differences between what was happening in central Tibet uh, under the Gilipa administration, you know, um, in, 18th, 19th century, um, you know, vis-a-vis what was happening with uh, non-Gilipa schools uh, and religious figures in Eastern Tibet in the same period. Um, And in particular, it seems as though in Central Tibet, things like uh, monasticism and monastic purity and scholasticism, uh, you know, monastic debate, um, you know, that approach was important. consolidation of knowledge, um, you know, textbook style approach to learning. Uh, some of these things people have said was, you know, Gene Smith has argued, right, is associated with the, the Gilip tradition in central Tibet um, as they kind of consolidated authority. And, and that there was a kind of, in Eastern Tibet, there, you know, you didn't have the same kind of uh, political authority. You had, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, kind of people operating with more autonomy. Um, you know, you have other kind of religious uh, characters or, you know, types of religious specialists who are, you know, non-monastics, let's say, who are operating, you, have, you know, treasure discovery, for example, Tertan or treasure revealers who, are a- who have charisma, who are able to kind of uh, disclose and bring out, you know, new new traditions uh, for practice, um, new commentaries uh, being authored on uh, you know, seminals, texts. So, 
it seems in Bern you have some of the same thing. You have a new treasure phenomenon in new, and, and this term new Bern, um, again, I talk about it a little bit in the book. It could be traced back earlier than this period by a couple of centuries at minimum, you know, maybe to the beginning of the 18th century or depending on how you count certain figures who associated with this movement, you could go back earlier as well. But it seems to have uh, picked up some pace, uh, you know, in Eastern Tibet alongside of the developments in, uh, in Buddhist lineages. And that, um, I think those questions, you know, do you, how much do you revere or give sort of pride of place to new termas and new tertons to, to that style of religious authority? Um, do you, do you care about things like monastic precepts or the transmission of, of, uh, or of things even like chanting styles, you know, that have come down through mm-hmm. families and family lineages in central Tibet. Um, so, you know, I think some of it may be economics. I did once ask, uh, you know, one um, senior monk uh, who was affiliated with a monastery that was sometimes openly you know, accepted the term new bun as a positive thing uh, in calm. And he said, uh, you know, if it weren't new bun, there probably would have been something else, you know, that caused some sense of rivalry or, you know, it could be a uh, potentially divisive, you know, um, and at times that may be that there's, you know, there's some, there's scarce resources that there's not, uh, uh, strong, but, uh, patrons or sources of support or revenue in central Tibet. So for those institutions to, um, maintain themselves, they often you know, needed to draw resources from populations in Eastern Tibet. And so, um, you know, there's, there's a bit of that issue of, of competition for patrons that, that may have also um, been kind of underlying these dynamics. Yeah, this, um, you know, it's interesting insofar as Bun, of course, has its own specific ways that these conflicts get read out, but this sort of, um, what we might say, more conservative, preserving the past, sort of more institutional monastic hierarchy versus this kind of less monastic, less controlled, new teramas, new texts, new kinds of things. And the, the push pull of who's going to, you know, have the say to say what Bun is, is um, I think going to be familiar to a lot of people studying religion elsewhere. Yes. And so this, um, this controversy, I think can, can be summed up, not summed up, but it, there, there's a funny, I think funny anecdote that you tell in the book um, called the Sherup Drakpa affair that kind of brings all of these, you know, vague um, tensions and conflicts really out into the open. And I, so I was wondering if you could just tell that um, that story for us. Sure. sure. And, you know, and again, I'm happy to remember that. I, I heard versions of this from a couple of, you know, senior figures uh, in Menry, but it's nice to remember the, you know, his Holiness, the thirty-third men retreats, and told me this this story himself. So I'll try to remember. But and he did it with a sense of humor, and it, you know it does go to. I mean, you know, Tibetans themselves, even the ones who participate in these, uh, you know, um, ceremonial protocols that they you know spend a lot of time uh, investing in, and it can be very special ritual occasions and so forth. You know, they know very well they're also subject to. Um, 
you know, very human um, <laughs> dynamics. Uh, and in this one, it's really a little bit about uh, status. And so the story goes uh, when Shardza was 63, uh, so somewhat later in life, he was invited to a place called Tokdengun. Um, and that's that's the colloquial term for it. Um, I've, I've actually forgotten the, uh, the formal name of the monastery, but it's in the book. Um, and uh, it's located uh, in Amdo Ngawa uh, and very near a monastery known as Nangshi or Nangshik, which uh, is much larger. And they're, they're kind of, um, they've traditionally been uh, at odds to some degree. They've been a little bit, there's been some rivalry. And Nangshi, even now, is uh, one of the largest uh, Bun monasteries uh, in Tibet. And they, they have a scholastic training program, which is similar to what traditionally was found in central Tibet and at Yungdrum Lane, um, you know, where you can um, study towards a Geshe degree and, you know, do debate and so on, that style of training. And again, it's nice to even mention that people, you know, uh, might assume if, you know, Bun is primarily about, you know, more shamanic side of Tibetan religion. People might be surprised to know that they adopted, you know, debate style of uh, education, but indeed they, they did and they still do. Um, so Nangshik is uh, more of that style of, of place. Uh, and again, there's been, I think, some sense of rivalry with Tolkien, and there's some history about that that one could look into. So in any case, uh, Shardza had been invited to Tolkien, and a Geshe from the Central Tibetan Burn Monastery, the old Burn Monastery of Yongdrungling, known as Sherap Drakpa, had been invited to Nangshik, which is nearby. And since they were both going to be there at the same time, uh, there was a decision made to have a kind of a joint ceremony and they set up a tent in the open area you know between the monasteries and um and they set up the thrones and according to the versions of the story there was a problem with the throne with the seating arrangements to begin with you know maybe this is no surprise right we all know that (laughs) who sits in front of you know ahead of whom uh says something about your status and uh, either the throne for Shardza was either slightly higher than or equal in height to that of this Geshe. Uh, and the Geshe was was not happy about it because, again, he had this type of credential, right? It's equivalent to a PhD, let's say, that Shardza did not have. Shardza never received a kind of formal education in this style. Uh, and that's perhaps one of the things that can be held against him, in which I think the biographer has to do some work to sort of overcome. Um, so then there was a question about, you know, who, who should speak first? And they apparently were politely deferring to one another. Oh, you know, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. In the end, uh, Shardza spoke first and he, 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 he reportedly spoke very well, but, at the end, he, he asked a kind of rhetorical question, which, you know, something to the end of, you know, after, after, and, and the, as you know, like, you don't have to use a first person pronoun in Tibet. After I'm gone, but I think that the intention was after the teacher is gone, after your Lama is gone, when there's no teacher around anymore, you know, who's going to guide you? 
And, and the, the point is you have to take some responsibility for yourselves. You know, you have to, you know, do your practice and right. Take to heart what you've been taught. You can't be relying on the, you know, the teacher in person all the time. So, you know, he said something like this after the teacher is gone, who, who's going to be able to guide you? Apparently the Geshe, uh, understood this differently. And he thought that Shardza was saying something rather proud, which is that after I, Shardza, am no longer here in the area, who's capable of guiding you? And the Geshe took this as a, as a, as a slight. Um, and, and, uh, and then apparently, you know, spoke rather argumentatively and talked about, you know, gave a lecture about what was important in the religious life. And it was really about things that would help to maintain and preserve the tradition vows and study and practice and then you know doing this kind of yogi's own thing you know may help you liberate yourself you know like a stone like going up into the sky and you know disappearing but you know it doesn't do much for bud so you know don't be like that kind of person really and that's that was really the model that shardza represented so this is the way the story goes. And apparently once there was this kind of uh, falling out between the two of them, that was the, then the, the flashpoint for a whole series of, um, you know, rather nasty correspondence, you know, in literary style that circulated um, among people back and forth uh, over, you know, a number of years from then. Mm-hmm. Well, we as academics wouldn't know anything about these sort of slights and, credential pride issues so yeah no it doesn't sound like anything we experience at all no No. Uh, but it is this you know wonderful sort of human moment where you get a sense of this community saying you know what types of authority what kinds of backgrounds who um you know again gets to say what bun is yeah it's real, and it's interesting it does feel like there's resonances for today in a way you know on what basis do we have authority to, you know, represent mindfulness or whatever it is. And how do we, you know, what, what is a meaningful credential? And is it, is it, is it just in the audi- eyes of the audience or, um, you know, who should have confidence in what they know and, and so forth? I think it's, you know, yeah, these are interesting questions. Is it just about kind of maintaining and performing status or, you know, or what? But yeah, they've the, it's interesting to see, you know, in some sense, these maybe rather human dynamics playing out in a very different circumstance. But it was it was also fun to have, you know, the Menry, you know, authorities telling me these sort of juicy stories, almost like sort of gossiping a little bit about, you know, these in some sense, you know, probably, uh, you know, people who maybe got, you know, uh, went a little overboard with their, um, you know, their reactions to these things. Yeah. And so if, um, so Sherup Drakba, he gets this monastic, um, you know, geshe degree, um, that's sort of his claim to authority. What is it that makes Shardza, you know, in the eyes of these biographers and maybe in the eyes of his followers too, what makes him um, a compelling, you know, potential alternative to that? What's he um, got going on? Yeah. I know I was I was kind of really really thinking about that uh, before we talked a little bit. Like it's pretty interesting that this rural kid, you know, the only son of a kind of farming family with no special connections, ended up becoming such a a renowned figure. And um, it seems like you know he was um, 
part of it was that he really did. I think he was a good learner. Um, he, but he was, you know, he taught himself essentially. He he read texts in the Protect Their Temple, you know, in the monastery where his teacher, his teacher, uh, you know, kind of was presiding. Um, and he he started writing. I think it was probably um, the draw to begin uh, writing on the basis of the things he read. Um, and then, you know, he did have esoteric experiences as well, um, you know, in relationship to um, his teacher. Um, you know, interestingly, his teacher is kind of styled as a kind of uh, tantric, uh, unpredictable figure, you know, who's able to, uh, through skillful means, including kind of, uh, kind of frightening and dangerous skillful means, uh, you know, wake him up to uh, kind of, you know, hidden knowledge that was sort of buried within him. And, and once he had some of these, these uh, breakthrough experiences, uh, he was then able to comprehend written material in ways that hadn't been possible before. So some of his religious authority is kind of conveyed through these sort of esoteric means. I think part of it, though, is that he then develops, uh, you know, not only a love for kind of self-study, but also a uh, love and a proficiency for writing and he um he starts writing and and then i'd say there's some circumstances um one two is that he must have been a really good teacher um you know the initial story of him teaching was fairly um you know again pedestrian is the word that comes to mind uh the abbot was going to be away you know and basically asked him to substitute you know Okay, teach preliminary practices to you know these people who who are showing up, and um, and he was good at it, you know. And so people asked him to do it again, and he began to teach and then do some writing in relationship to students who asked for particular things. Um, so those are some of the things that are coming together. Um, and then the the other thing is that there was some unrest in his home region. Um, that might be interesting to talk about, but he, he became, a, at that point, he started to travel. Um, and, and just prior to that, um, he, um, he met a Tertan in the Bun tradition um, who became a, a close uh, friend and really a, both a, a teacher and student and, and a kind of co-collaborator. And I think that the agency of the Tertan, Sanak Lingba, was really important to the reception he received when he started to travel in Yarong in particular. And that's when he started to receive some real patronage and, and some of the, the, the funds that would support uh, publication of his writing. And once his writing started to circulate from there, um, he really became, uh, I think, a, you know, someone to be reckoned with um, and a really well-known figure uh, from that point forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and particularly in this climate, as, as you've mentioned, of of remay of people being interested in learning from different sorts of teachers. Uh, you mentioned in the book that he does have contact with some, you know, well-known Buddhist teachers and people are crossing sectarian lines left and right. Um, it's, it's a very interesting time in Tibetan history. It is. And that to me, you know, as somebody, again, I you know, came to Bern having an interest in Tibetan Buddhism already. And I kind of imagine that some of the readers of a book like this would have familiarity or interest in, in 
Tibetan Buddhism. And, and to me, those kind of the relations with Tibetan Buddhists was something I was certainly curious about. Um, and again, when I had read, started to read a bit about him in the available scholarship, uh, you know, he was certainly his, his kind of um, his remake connections are one of the things that's always mentioned, um, you know, almost near the beginning. That he's sort of said to be by people like Gene Smith, you know, what Kongtrul and Kensei were for the Buddhists in this period, you know, Shardze is for the Bunpo, a kind of systematizer and a, you know, uh, and someone who participated in this ecumenical uh, climate quite actively. Um, and I was interested in whether the biographer would, how, how he would handle, you know, that, um, you know, given that that might be a bit controversial. But, um, but in fact, he really uh, celebrates it, I would say. I think he's, he's uh, generally keen to emphasize this sort of nonpartisan attitude as one that's uh, especially laudable and is indeed a kind of ideal quality a religious figure should have, um, e- even amidst this potential critique from more conservative Bunpo. Um, and he, he takes pains to... Um, in fact, reproduce uh, a letter that Shardza received from uh, from Kongtrul, from Jonggun Kongtrul Rinpoche. Uh, again, Shardza was quite young. He sent him a letter. Kongtrul was in his 80s, uh, but responded with a, a kind letter that sort of encouraged Shardza. Um, and then again, as you mentioned, there are several cases that, that I kind of mentioned of, uh, of various pro- relatively prominent Buddhists who, uh, who receive Shardza or correspond with him uh, or you know basically uh, speak highly of uh, of his writing um, and that's that's kind of interesting to to see yeah um, and so as you've also alluded to the book um, part two of the book is a full translation of the shorter of these two biographies uh, which I really appreciate insofar as the kind of analysis presents the material in a certain kind of way, but then you also give us kind of direct access to the text itself such that, you know, we can read about Shardza in the, the, the manner that um, Kelsang Tembe Gilson wrote about him. Um, so I do really appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. You know, quite honestly, um, uh, if I had a fear or doubt about the book, I, I kind of wondered whether it was sort of under theorized in some sense, you know, and that was maybe my own, uh, you know, anxiety about the project, but I guess I, I also decided that um, perhaps it's better to err on that side, you know, given that we all know that, that sometimes that becomes quickly the more dated aspect of an academic work, you know, if it's really grounded and like, you know, the theory that seems really kind of like, you know, what sort of essential for, you know, one decade, it may kind of detract later. I seem to remember a long time ago reading uh, some ethnographic material from the Himalayas that seemed really interesting, but it was read from a kind of psychoanalytic point of view. And I remember kind of like, oh, just let me get past the analysis so I can like read more of the ethnography, you know? Yeah. You know, just, I'd love to read those interviews. Right. Right. Yeah. So having this, um, yeah. kind of direct access to it is I think really good. And especially again, um, plugging the book as a teaching resource, giving students a sense of what these 
kind of hagiographies or biographies look like. Yeah. And to be honest with you, yeah, it's quite different. I mean, you know, we wouldn't write it in some sense, maybe the beginning, you know, the first half of the book is my effort to kind of uh, bridge the gap and kind of retell the story. Um, and I've become the, the biographer, I suppose, in my own way and try to highlight the things that I think a, a Western reader might find interesting. Um, but and then you get the traditional one, which has some 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 piece, period, you know, some sections that are really captivating, I think. But then some other stuff that, you know, to me is maybe a little boring <laughs> or, you know, you see that they have a it's a big job to kind of try to provide a kind of a resume of accomplishments, let's say, or even lists, you know, of, of teachers or students or initiations received or something that, you know, in in time and place might have been quite important to name. Um, but that for us, you know, maybe uh, less interesting than a captivating narrative about, you know, meditation experience or something. Um, but you get it all. Um, and, uh, you know, he does his best, I think, for traditional readers uh, to, um, you know, weave it together in a way that makes sense. Well, I think it's great. I recommend that all of our listeners um go out and buy the book. It's available in paperback. So it's, you know, good to assign to students. Um, but so Bill, we've taken up a lot of your time, especially um, we, this is the second time we're doing this interview as the, the first time the audio got corrupted in some way. So thanks, especially for talking with me twice. Uh, now. My pleasure. Truly. Um, <laughs> uh, but before we go, um, can I ask what you're working on these days? Or what's coming up next for you? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I I'm going to give a talk. I accepted an invitation to uh, to give a talk about some of about Bun and Shardza um, in in Korea. Actually, a place I haven't been. But kind of excited to talk to an association of Korean Buddhists about some of this material. And um, I thought one of the things that um, that's in Shardza's corpus that some of his readers some some educated readers will know about is that there's a, um, a kind of refutation that he, he wrote to a, uh, uh, to a Nyingma a sort of conservative figure from, uh, from Jarong who uh, attacked Bun as, you know, as, as heterodox. And he wrote uh, something that kind of tries to refute some of these charges that were made about, why Bun is incompatible with Buddhism. And it's something that I've looked at before, um, and I'm going to kind of look back at it again and um, kind of see, you know, how, what are some of the ways in which even in the modern period, there's still some tensions uh, between uh, Bun and Buddhist lineages on, on certain points um, alongside of, you know, again, what are some of the, the, the grounds for more productive dialogue and what are some of the things that seem like common interests or common shared so i'm kind of going to go back and, and and revisit that which i've i've looked at before but not recently and maybe not in as much depth um and uh yeah beyond that we'll have to see i kind of feel like um like there's there's more work that 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 uh it would be valuable to do whether by me or by others you know with shards as uh Corpus. Uh, there's a there's a, a wonderful kind of outline overview of it that Jean-Luc Achard has done, so people can kind of dig in and, and see, you know, um, his works on Dzogchen, you know, his his treasuries. He has so-called five treasuries on a variety of topics. One of them, Sumten Karmay translated, it was a, a 
a history of bud, the treasury of good sayings is, is extant in English from a history. And um, so we'll see, uh, you know, working with biographical material has been really rewarding. So there's, there's a biography of one of his foremost students uh, um, who also attained the rainbow body at the end of his life. Um, so these are all possible uh, areas for further exploration. And, and if it, and I hope that th- that will be done, if not by me, then by, by others out there with the, with the skills. <laughs> Yeah, that's those all sound like exciting options, and hopefully you get a bit of a break now that the book is out um, and done uh, before you start. Yeah, it's been nice too to hard on all of that. Some some vacation time over this past summer for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I wanted to just thank you again. Um, really enjoy it. Recommend the book to all listeners. Uh, so uh, take care, and I look forward to talking to you again when this new research comes out. <laughs>